Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I am Russell Tovey. And I'm Robert Diamond. And this is Talk Arts. Welcome to Talk Arts. How are you, Robert? I am feeling festive. Ooh. <laughs> because I'm in the city. I'm, I'm in London. We are. And even though the pandemic's been happening, London has this amazing, magical buzz this time of year. Mm-hmm. And I'd forgotten completely what it's like. A, mm. because Margate has just been like totally silent. Like I see nobody, there's no one on the streets. Because this time of year, there's no tourists. Mm-hmm. So it's just really, really quiet. And coming to London, like the buzz on the streets and the lights. And just, do you like the buzz or do you find it overwhelming? I love it. I oh, feel good. really excited to be here. Good. And it's, we're currently in the headquarters of an international gallery. Mm-hmm. They have spaces all over the world, but mm-hmm. this is their London headquarters That's right. at Tadeus Ropak. And this is an extraordinary gallery programme. They show artists who have you know, made a massive contribution to contemporary art. And art history. And art history. Um, future guests of ours, actually, Gilbert and George, are represented by them, and mm-hmm. so many amazing artists. Mm-hmm. Today, we are going to be meeting somebody who I have always found to be incredibly kind, generous, someone who listens to artists and has brought together so many different kinds of people to the art world, yeah. whether that be, you know, people from, like, banking or f- famous families, even Princess Diana, because I know Princess Diana went to the Serpentine, yeah. and, you know, all kinds of different people, and ran the Serpentine for a, a long time mm-hmm. and actually transformed it and made it pretty much the world's leading art space yeah. i mean there was and it pr- pretty much is nowhere else better yeah. when we first started talk art we had a list of people that we would love to invite on the a show list yes and we were so nervous to even ask anybody at that point because we felt like would anyone even come on mm-hmm. and our guest today was in our top 10 and we are so excited that finally we are in in your presence so we would like to welcome to talk art dame, dame julia, julia Peyton jones well, if this, is re- if this is television, you'd see me blushing. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> the colour of my lipstick. Because obviously it's radio, so you put on lipstick. Yes. Definitely. That yes, is yes, a yes. very, very generous and kind introduction. Thank you very much. And I am incredibly honoured to be um, invited to be part of this extraordinary series, which oh. just before we started uh, with these enormous microphones <laughs> that have slightly <laughs> taken me by surprise... Um, One of the things that we talked about was this idea of communicating to people that actually art is accessible. And it doesn't have to be kind of like going to school, but it's just, it is for everybody. Mm -hmm. And that's really what the public sector does. Mm -hmm. And you're doing it incredibly efficiently. (laughs) You're you're, You're two people without a museum, really, 
running a very, very sophisticated education program about what's worth looking at in the world, who's interesting, and allowing them to speak. Julia, that is so nice. Thank you. What an endorsement. Thank you very much. No, really, I mean it. Oh, thank you. That means the world. Well, we're in your office, head office. And we're surrounded by incredible artworks. Do you... Do these change a lot? Do you curate your own office and the works do you cherry-pick from the gallery? Yes. Well, one of the fascinating things is that when you work for a commercial gallery, because time is money, everything Mm. happens at speed. So if somebody's coming in to look at a work of art, whoosh, 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 the whole installation changes, the work of art that they're coming to look at goes up on the wall, then it gets whooshed away again (laughs) and something else comes in. But can you imagine living with these works of art? So... For, um, I'm looking at a fantastic new painting by Mandy El Sayeg, um, who does these beautiful neck grids. This is, um, this is one for a mid-sized neck grid, but I'm not sure if you saw there was a show that yeah, I curated. Show. Exactly, and there was an incredible installation. And this is a more coloured version, but it's extraordinary for many, many different reasons. But I think one of the things that I find endlessly fascinating about her work is the way she layers but her, her images, which can be the form of newspapers or fabrics or, in this case, maps, mm-hmm. textiles. And so you've got a, a real sense of a kind of hinterland um, mm-hmm. to every image. And then this, on the right-hand side, is a work by James Rosenquist. Um, it's part of a, of, of a woman's profile, but only going from her eye in profile, and you just see a, a bit of her nose, a nostril, the word I was looking for, mm-hmm. um, which is on a bit of canvas, which is stretched onto a frame. And it's a kind of very brutal uh, image. I mean, it's quite this idea There's of some tension cool, held in that, yeah. Isn't there? Yeah. Um, and kind of painful, that thing, that feeling of the canvas being stretched uh-huh. on wire. Yeah, and of the face. This I know. It's like her face skin, it's like, stretched, a, yeah. it's like a facelift or yeah. something happening, it's like <laughs> cosmetic surgery. It's also quite captivating for that reason, though. I think it's such an unusual thing. You wouldn't normally have seen something no. like that. So it's very fresh, isn't it, as a, as a visual But you image. chose that one for your office. Well, yes, I did, actually. Yeah. But, I mean, can you imagine being in a position where you'll say, mm, what do I feel like to do? <laughs> I think James Rosenquist. What a very good idea. Amazing. I know. And then behind me are these beautiful drawings by Marlo Moss. Yeah, they're gorgeous. They're gorgeous, aren't they? Yeah. And she's so fascinating because she kind of has recently come to prominence for making the contribution that was kind of hidden from view. Mm. And also she's so much a woman of our time and a pioneer of hers. Mm. And... You know, what a joy. Mm. I should also say that the architecture in this building is so outstanding. And I, I'm convinced that I have the second best office in London. Yeah. Today. <laughs> That's the first best, <laughs> obviously. You know, <laughs> you know, the building's so extraordinary. And I was stood outside waiting for Russell to arrive because the diva wasn't on time. Um, <laughs> he was on time for you, but not for me. No, Because we, we always meet a bit earlier. Yeah. And um, I was looking at the facade of the building and what an extraordinary building. It looks so what beautiful. Was it? What's the history of this place? Well, that... Actually, because I'm so glad you asked, because yeah. I think it's going to segue further on oh, right. <laughs> so, to one of the questions you might ask me. It was the London residence of the Bishop of Ely, right. 18th century. But what is fascinating about it is that since that time, and it was the, the, the London residence of the Bishop of Ely, or attached to Ely, 
for a very long time until the beginning of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Then it was the home of the Carlton Club, which was the first club to accept women. It was also... That's like a members' club. As a members' club. It's yeah. a man, yes, thank you. It's a male members' club uh-huh. who accepted women. But, of course, even now, male members, those very, very establishment males' members' club don't accept women. Yeah. So, you know, they were really ahead of <laughs> their time. And, in addition to that, the suffrage um, movement had their headquarters here. Wow. Which is kind of like, you know, I feel as though I'm, I'm in this... Yeah. Yes. Wow. Imagine. What, and they used to meet here, or they actually had, like, a base? They had, they had a base here as part of the... As part of Secretly, the, or... Well, you're asking me questions. Right, okay, right. Yeah. <laughs> However, <laughs> I must tell you a very funny story. So I, I thought, well, when I came here, you know, very excited, very new and everything, and yeah. I thought Bishop of Ely, well, obviously the Bishop of Ely would not have had the money to, you know, get such an amazingly grand residence in London. So clearly he married a woman, which was very usual at the time. It was probably, you know, the daughter of a baker or a butcher or something, mm. who would have made it possible for him to do that. So I used to cheerfully tell this story. And one day, Tadeus turned to me and said, Julia, is this true? And I said, what a very good question. I'm not <laughs> sure. <laughs> so, I mean, my kind of fabrication about yeah, I love history that. is unreliable, as, I, as I you now know. Um, Amazing. So, well, look, look at this painting in front of us by Mandy. I this saw, is Mandy. Yeah, I saw her show at the Chisholm House. Yes. Which was incredible. Is this nice that you brought into the roster? You actively looking at art and bringing them into the program? Well, actually, um, that's a that's a really good question. I mean, I'm very lucky because I do a number of things. But in the first, not but, and yeah. <laughs> in the first week that I was at the gallery, uh, today some Polly Robinson Gare, who's who runs this. The, the London Gallery, and I went to see Mandy's studio, and right. then I curated a show called A Focus on Painting, in which Mandy was in it, and she did the most beautiful installation, as well as Rachel Jones, yes. Donna Nelson, mm-hmm. and Alvira Barrington. And um, so, and she's now joined the gallery, as Rachel has, which is very exciting. Oh, from the group show? From the group wow. show. Amazing. Yes, I know, isn't it great? And the Chisholm show that Mandy did was yes. extraordinary, yeah. and I feel really? like that really kind of also helped to introduce her to a different generation like her own generation in a way like um at the same time in a way and i loved that show and i i felt like she has such a unique approach and internationally she's very quickly um sort of i know people all over the world that are collecting her work trying to collect her work you know obsessed with her and it's really interesting how that can happen sometimes internationally all Mm. at the same time like how there's a kind of consciousness. Zeitgeist, yeah, zeitgeist, like, yeah. exactly, yeah. How do, you ha- how do you handle when an artist is really coveted? I mean, obviously museums come first, but uh, yeah. do you like collectors? Is that something you like dealing with, like talking to collectors and negotiating with collectors? Or is, is, that, is, is, is that tricky at times? Well, <laughs> no, but the reason I, I hesitate, because... The truth of the matter is, uh, firstly, I think the art world is a virtuous circle. So I've got that written down, the virtuous circle. There we yes. go. <laughs> um, and it's a virtuous circle because, um, you know, artists need collectors. Collectors are fascinated about being informed about what's going on, so they talk to curators and directors. Then, you know, there's a whole public sector element. Mm-hmm. So, it, and particularly now, there is, it's a seamless kind of, in a way, operation. 
which wasn't the case when I was, began my life in the art world. It was really anything commercial was like, ooh, scary. Mm-hmm. And the not-for-profit sector, which is where I've had most of my history, was something, you know, set aside. Of course I love collectors because, I, I mean, I'm really fascinated by this idea of ownership. I don't have that bug. I don't... So you don't collect? <laughs> I don't collect. Well, I mean, I, that's not entirely true. But I collect extremely infrequently. Right. And I've collected most since I've been here. And I bought two things. So I think that I can safely say I haven't got the collecting gene. Yeah. I just don't. And I think the world is divided into people who collect and people who don't. And you either have it or you don't. I am an obsessive collector. As am I. We're both complete. That's what bonded us. And my brother has no collecting (laughs) bug in him on any level what do you think it is? What do you, if, to pop psychoanalyze that, why, <laughs> what do you think collectors are? What is that? Well, um, I think it's this desire for ownership. And yeah. I don't have that desire for ownership. Because when I was at the Serpentine, I used to think how fortunate I was that I could, in inverted commas, own something, for the pe- own works of art for the period that the show or the project was up. And then it went away again. And then I could... And and also, I remember very, very well when I... Because I went to art school. When I went to art school, I was living in a a flat. uh, um, They were never called apartments. They were always flats, if you were lucky. Mm -hmm. Um, And Hester Van Royen had a gallery opposite where I lived. And every morning, I used to go off to school and I would see a drawing by Elizabeth Frink. And I thought it was the most beautiful thing that I had ever seen, ever. And if I could have possibly owned it, I would have done anything to own it. Wow. Wow. And then my taste changed. And I thought, imagine if I'd still got that drawing and how disloyal I would have been to it. <laughs> no, but you know what I mean. What was, it, what was the image of? It was a horse. It was a horse, right. And I don't, I mean, I have no connection to horses. I don't ride. I mm. don't, you know, it's, it, I just thought it was gorgeous. It's fascinating. Yeah. So that really told me that you know, perhaps I don't, I, I don't like this idea of being located in time by an object right. because my taste changes. Interesting. So you're talking about when you were studying. So you were a painter and you, do you still make work now or was, was that something that you stopped? Because I know you asked me about me making music now and I was like, no, I don't do that. But what about yourself? Do you? Yes, that's why if you'd looked at me when you said, oh, no, 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 I'm never going to do it again. I went, mm-hmm. <laughs> never say never. Really? Yes, I, I do make work now. You studied at the Royal College of Art? Yes, yeah. I was in the painting school at the Royal College of Art, and then I went on to teach at Edinburgh. And, um, and I was an early pioneer of fundraising because I wanted to only work part-time so I could be in the studio. And so the way to do that then, because teaching jobs happened to dry up when I, it was just accident when I came back down to live in London after being in Edinburgh. So I thought, oh, cripes, what can I do? <laughs> so I, I raised money. And that then was considered to be the worst thing you could do. Right. It was beyond, beyond, beyond. Because <laughs> I was kind of... A, Raising money was associated with Thatcher and, you know, commercialism and all that stuff. So, um, but anyway, to cut a very long story short, yes, I'm in the studio every day. Oh, you are? Yeah, yeah. That's so cool. What, so what, do you get up in the morning and do it or when you get home or...? No, I do it in the evening. I've got, 
No, but it's, it's, it's kind of exciting because I've always admired people hugely who, 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 you know, had a day job where they earned money and then they yeah. came back in the evening and then they did their own work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I always thought, I could never do that. I could never do that. And then I set myself a project that I would, I would do a daily visual diary, which I did for nine months of this year. And, um, yeah, so I'm, I'm very so pleased. So painting a day? sort of thing well right? I actually they were drawings and wow and um so yes and I'm I'm looking at them now actually I started a new group and um and I'm very pleased with myself for having done it but I'm also very I've gone I'm quite nerdy about thinking when I'm when I'm probably 85 I'll have a show but so not now. Cool. You've no, no ambition to too, show work now. It's too early now. I haven't right. reached cruising altitude. But <laughs> <laughs> wow. I might do a book. So that's maybe What now. is your work like? Because you actually have two works in the Bank of England. They, they're, they're a collection, right? Oh, well-researched. Now, I'm sure they've <laughs> sure they chucked them out by now. <laughs> Apparently, no. they're still on display. I, I heard they were. <laughs> no. What's your work like? Well, what I decided to do, because... Um, Having not worked for such a long time, I felt I needed a, a kind of structure that was both safe, a subject matter that was safe, mm. and, and also that it was something that I could do. I didn't, or I haven't yet reached the point where I would start a work and then continue it over evenings for an indeterminate period of time. Right. So I decide, people used to say, oh, it's, a, it's such a pity that you don't do drawings of your daughter. So... Anyway, I, I, I did this kind of daily diary, a visual diary. Oh. So that's what I did. And, what is, and talking about your daughter, then, what does she think of the art world? Because she's three, is she? Three she's or, about to be four. About to be four. Has she got a connection to art in some ways? Or? Oh, God, she's so good. Oh, really? really? <laughs> I look at her work and I oh. go, OK, it's really nice, like <laughs> nothing I do. <laughs> <laughs> she's got a natural aptitude for it. Yes. Great. Yes. That's so exciting. Wow. So we talked about the Serpentine, where it was a non-profit, and then you've moved from that to being a dealer. What was that transition like? It was more... I mean, because I, I raised money, I mean, that's part of what I... I mean, I did many things, but raising money was part of them. I thought that would be very... It would be a very smooth transition. Mm. And, of course, if you move, whilst it's still very much in the art world, but it's a different kind of expertise and a different discipline, as yeah. you will know. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I'm still learning. I have enormous respect for my colleagues who mm. are utterly brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, I think it's to sell anything is difficult. I used to sell the Serpentine every day. I used to think that I could really work at Goldman Sachs. There was no difference yeah, to yeah. what I did and to what... A banker did, which of course was ridiculous because if I ever worked with Goldman Sachs, they'd have asked me to leave after the first <laughs> half hour. But <laughs> nevertheless, um, you know, I'm learning every day. I love to sell art. I remember meeting you at the Serpentine and I came with Helen Thorpe, the collector. Yeah, of course. I love friend. Helen. Yes, me too. And Russell's um, recently acted in a film that she directed. Oh, fantastic. Um, yeah, yeah, like a short film. It's a beautiful yes. film. And um, I came with her and I remember being really nervous because it was one of these kind of patrons events. And I remember thinking like, 
like, why am I going? Like, I'm not really invited. I was going with her. And when we got to the door, you came over and said hi. And I remember you talking to me for about 10 minutes. And you put me so at ease. And I think that was what was so interesting about you because you're talking about raising funds and all that kind of stuff. Mm. But I think you have an empathy and approach to and a respect for art that means your kind of love of it comes across like very naturally and then it puts everyone else at ease which is probably well, it's why it's an authentic passion exactly yeah. yeah and I always remember that meeting and then I met you a number of times after with her and other friends and serpentine parties and all of those fun events but every time I've met you I've always felt that generosity is that something that comes natural to you like are you at ease with being a social kind of or is it an person? act or is it <laughs> no I don't, I don't mean is it an act I no. mean more I mean more like is it is it does it is it anxious making yeah. or, or are you very at ease with networking and meeting people and chatting to strangers and I think it helps enormously if you have I mean if you have um if you have a job if you know what I mean my my job what I wanted I wanted the serpentine to be really successful right. and when I took it over as director firstly I was the person least expected to get the job so that was already a like ooh um and at the time you know the art world was really in the doldrums Mm. it was about 91 so nothing was happening really and so I just thought okay let's have fun with this let's really make it to be as successful as it possibly can be and I did everything that I could to make sure that that happened and so part of that was going out and in the world and meeting people Mm. naturally I'd probably be a hermit left to my own devices (laughs) right so it always surprises me that I, the summer party was a kind of something that I, I suppose you could say I created, when actually I loathe parties. Really? <laughs> Do you? Absolutely. You would, I mean, a small dinner, perfect. Anything larger than that, I'm like, woo. Wow. So the actual role propelled you yes. into sort of taking you know, chances that you might not have done otherwise. That's so yes. interesting. You also had the pressure because it's a party of, of like, the dress you was going to wear oh, every oh year, my God. right? No, but you know, the funniest thing, because the, 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 you mentioned the Princess of Wales, who was our patron, and she... There are two stories about dresses, which was hilarious. One was, on the day of the, the, the dress, which was known as the revenge dress, I rang up her lady-in-waiting, and I, and I don't know what possessed me to do this, and I said, and what... What, what is our patron, which is what I call it, what is our patron going to wear? She said, and so her lady-in-waiting said she's going to wear a short dress. I said, but she can't. Yeah, absolutely not. This is an evening, this is long dress. She said, well, she really is going to wear a short dress. And so I went, <laughs> short dress. <laughs> anyway, I wore the same dress two years running because I was so such a nincompoo. I forgot to think about my dress. Right. So I went to a very old friend of my family's who made beautiful clothes and said, could I borrow something? So she said yes. And I realised I'd done exactly the same thing the following year. And she only had this one dress that she loaned to people uh, that I'd already worn. So she made a pink kind of bow to make it look different. And I sat next door to this man at dinner who's hugely rich. And I can't remember how clothes came up. And I said, well, you know, I borrowed my dress. And he took to me and he said, you know, I've never met anybody who has ever borrowed a dress. Can you imagine? So, I mean, and I, so to answer your question, I always borrowed dresses for some party. And in fact, thank God, people were kind enough to lend them to me because having worn them, they kind of, they, they, 
all the anxiety, all the worry, yeah. all the everything kind of went into this dress. I could never have worn it again, ever. It would have been impossible. And actually, that's become a thing anyway now in popular culture. Like, well, if you think exactly. of... Even Russell gets sent things that he wears. Yeah, yes. You know what I mean? Like, that's actually become a thing yeah, yeah. since then. Totally. Yeah. Was you, so was you um, upset with the revenge dress in the end? Or, I mean, that, is, that no, gave so I mean, much publicity. Like, oh, you know, Sensational. Course. How did you get Princess Diana involved in the seventh time? She, she was the neighbour, wasn't she? Yes. She was our Kensington dear Palace. and dear neighbour, yeah. as we described her. And uh, one of our trustees, trustees of the seventh time, Roger Bramble, um, who I always called the Oracle, uh, was great friends with her. Mm-hmm. And when we were doing the... It's so fascinating because it was whether... Was she going to be the patron of the Serpentine mm-hmm. or was she going to be the patron of the renovation appeal? And so we all went, no, 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 can't possibly be a patron of the Serpentine. No, she's going to be patron of the renovation appeal. So she was patron of the appeal that we raised 5.2 or 3 million wow. to renovate the old Serpentine, so to speak, yeah. which is now... They have to raise more than that considerably more than really? that every year. Yeah. And Vanity Fair were our partners. It was hilarious. Hilarious. Because there were only 12 people or something working at the Serpentine, including the people, the invigilators. So it was an incredibly small team. And Vanity Fair had Hamilton South, who no longer doesn't work with them anymore, and Sarah Marks. And they are the great party givers of all time. Mm. So if they said... It's going to be pink jewel with purple bows. I just went, great. <laughs> pink and purple, my favourite. And they devised these whole incredible scenarios and the, the um, well, I mean, the tent in which we had the dinners was catered for by Jeremy King and Chris Corbin, who, of mm-hmm. course, the Wolseley and mm-hmm. those wonderful restaurants... It's our first outside catering. And something you inaugurated was the pavilion, which yes. then became part of the kind of whole summer experience. Yeah. yeah. So how did that come together? Because that was such a genius kind of move in a way, wasn't it? To bring architecture into the art world and to sort of cross-discipline, have, you know, multi-disciplines. And, and also and architects that's never been commissioned to do any work in the UK. You were finding these... Yeah. You, were you personally finding these architects as well? Was it something that you were passionately driven by yes but i mean i do think or at least i it uh, for how it works for me that necessity is the mother of invention so mm-hmm. the princess of wales died shortly before we were going to have a gala to open the new building of the serpentine and we then cancelled that gala and vanity fair said oh well look we've helped you raise the money you've got the new building you don't need us anymore so mm-hmm. i was like yes we and they went no you don't (laughs) and so we then had to come up with a to make it having done these incredible parties these dinners um with vanity fair the the exam question was then how on earth do you make something which is as fun and as good and as seamless as they helped us to do Mm. and so i asked zaha hadid who was a trustee to design a structure a canopy that the dinner could take place in and the, the, the rule of the game was that it wasn't going to cost any more than the tent that Vanity Fair paid for oh, for I dinner. See. So that, those were the rules. Wow. Did that stay? Has that stayed for every year? Well, no. Okay. They Stretched a lot It must have evolved, now. yeah. Yes. And also, it yes. sounds yeah. like it's all much more expensive than it was. And she did, and she designed the tables. And Chris Smith, who was then uh, 
Secretary of State for Culture and Media and Sport came to the dinner because the Royal Park said the, their rules were you cannot put anything on the serpentine lawn for more than a month, which included installation and deinstallation. Wow. And that was just ridiculous. And he, Christmas came and loved, loved Zaha and loved what she'd done and actually bought one of the tables because we sold them afterwards. And so oh, she we, designed the tables inside as well? Yes, wow. it was beautiful. And it was, they went from white to black. It was sensational. And the whole idea, whereas Vanity Fair did these amazing flowers. So wow. our 30th gala that Zaha designed the structure of was counter everything that Vanity Fair had done. So no flowers, completely minimal aesthetic. And I, it was really... I wanted to do something that really stood for what we were as, an, as a gallery, mm. which was, you know, resolutely of that moment. And, mm. you know, Zaha was, you know, that moment. I think it was also about innovation, because for me, you would go to those events and it just felt so innovative, but also it was such an experience that stays with you. Like, I remember all the times I went to those summer events when you first see the pavilion and the kind yeah. of awe you feel for it, because it's always so different each year. And I also remember things like, you know, the favourite music you hear, whether it would be like, I don't know, Pharrell Williams playing live or dancing. Actually, randomly, I danced for about 15 minutes with Grace Jones on the dance floor oh, at God. about midnight. You know what I mean? As it was ending. Wow. So, you know, things like that. These kind of very unusual situations would would happen only at that event. Are there things that you remember as being very special for you? Yes. I mean, what can I say? <laughs> um, I think, I mean, of course, I remember Grace Jones, you know, obviously the whole evening was, you know, when's Grace coming? You know, has she arrived? Yeah. I mean, it, um, yes, I think, I think all of them. And the fact... The thing about the pavilion was it was how to turn the, the lack of space at the Serpentine because mm. we couldn't do an extension, it was a listed building, and how to extend the space but make it relevant. And that, so it re really worked well there and we didn't have a cafe, so it had a cafe. So it was very, the whole idea was very, very simple mm. and straightforward in a way. And the fun of it was to, to work with the architects. But I remember, I mean, they were very difficult to do. Ugh. You know, and, and too many people wanted to come and then they got all cross. Would you have to put the plans to the council for them to oh, approve every year? Yeah, they, you would. Yeah, yeah. It was no different from doing a permanent building. The process was completely I know, I, the same. I always thought that about structural engineers and all these kinds yes. of... You must have had so many technicalities, you know, l let alone the whole VIP guest list problem yeah. where certain people don't get invited and they kick off or, you know, all that kind of side of it. Yes. Like managing egos and yeah, managing all of these egos. complicated things, yeah. But I think my most, the one, the, the, of all the pavilions, and I loved all of them, mm. I think the one that was possibly the most exciting was the Oscar Niemeyer pavilion, because yeah. he was this, I mean, he, he was this titan of a figure who was still in such a role model. He was still working. I saw him when he was, I think, he died when he was 103, and I saw wow. him when he was 101. Amazing. And at that point, he was still going to the office every day. Wow. Isn't that incredible? Yeah, yeah. And then the whole thing about how to get hold of him because he, he didn't answer any emails. It actually wasn't. It was faxes at that point. And Zaha was a friend of him, knew him. And um, so we would always be writing to him and nothing would happen. And one day, and they were translated into Portuguese, everything. We did everything. One day I rang up again 
And this voice answered the telephone, English voice. I thought, my God. And he said, oh, yes, I'll put it on Oscar's desk. So I imagined this whole office of things where actually it wasn't at all. It was just Oscar, and he had an inner sanctum, a tiny little library about a quarter of the size of this room, his his, um, PA, uh, and one of his nephews, and that was it. And everything else, all his buildings were done outside. And actually working with him on that project and going to Brazil... um, was just the most extraordinary experience ever. Yeah, once in a wow. lifetime. I mean, I know I, yeah. it was a great privilege. But there were lots of things like that. But you know, just like Hang on, you, he was one hundred and one when he designed that. No, no, he was ninety four. Wow. And I kept on saying, "Look, hurry up, hurry up!" It's <laughs> <laughs> wow. I know, but you see, isn't it exciting? Yes. So that means that I want to live. I have to live a long time um, because my, I've got a very young daughter, and I want to live a very long time and be in very good shape. Mm. But you know, when you have role models like that, it's like, yeah, you can. It I, can I really think work. of Carmen Herrera is like 105 and still making work every day. Yeah, we love her. I actually sent Russell some prints she's made. I mean, I just think she's such an extraordinary artist. Yeah, yeah. extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, what was your involvement with the actual exhibition program? Because obviously we've had the previous guest on Talk Art of your, you know, right hand person, yes. Hans Ulrich Obrist, um, and you two became, you know, global figures really for contemporary art. Like yeah. I think if anyone thought of contemporary art, they would think of power you two. Power couple. Yeah. You were a power couple for a long time. And how did that um, collaboration happen? And were you involved in the exhibition program, or was that his domain? Because I remember Rebecca Warren did a show with you yes. guys, and I remember you kind of being quite present in that process as well. You know, in the curating almost of it. Is yes. that right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah. So. Um, Richard Wentworth was a close friend of both Hans Ulrich's and mine, and he's and Richard was on the board, but he left shortly just because his term came to came to an end um, when when I arrived, and uh, he said, "Oh, you you must meet this young Swiss curator." So I said, "Oh, great!" <laughs> so there was Hans Ulrich, and I invited him to do a show, which he did called "Take Me, I'm Yours," which is still travelling the world as we speak. <laughs> it's the never-ending show. The never-ending. I mean, yeah. listen. Once Hans Ulrich's shows start, they—that's it. Yeah. In perpetuity. Yeah. Fantastic. So um, I think it's had its twentieth, whatever anniversary. Yes, twentieth anniversary, and um, he was amazing. <laughs> He, he used to send 100,000 faxes today, a day, and we were incredibly poor. And so we had this meeting saying, look, we've got to stop him sending faxes <laughs> because we can't afford it. But to who? Who was he sending them to? To people to get money? Artists, All his, you know, he, he, who has been the same forever? So all his artist friends, network, all over the world. Permanent, the fax machine was permanently going. Because if you think of his interview series, there's yeah. thousands of yeah, interviews no, and same, thousands yeah. of hours. It's like that, that didn't just. He loves up. to connect to other people, so yeah. he yeah. must talk to hundreds of artists every day. And he's yes. a workaholic, as you are in the Guardian, being quoted <laughs> as being a workaholic. <laughs> Aren't we all though? Yes. Yeah, yes. exactly. I think everyone in this room is. And um, so we had this meeting saying, "Look, you know," and, the, and then I went and said, "Look, Hans Ulrich, I'm, t- I'm terribly sorry. It's wonderful that you know you." <laughs> want to communicate to so many people but maybe you could just do it a bit less and so he said yes yeah. and then he he worked every day including on boxing day wow. and he had the telephone rang and he picked it up and the person on the other end of the telephone said you're working on boxing day and he went boxing day what is boxing day i've never heard of this boxing day 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So he, he kind of, he, he, he worked, he just worked. He was attached to the gallery. Then our paths went, we went our separate ways. And then we, I went to a lecture he did at the Courtauld. Uh, and afterwards, we decided to have dinner with a group of 10 people. And, of course, no restaurant wanted us. It was all too late. And we ended up um, sharing a taxi. I took him to his hotel. Then I went home and we were talking about the impossibility of of running an institution and, and what does an institution, a not-for-profit institution, look at mm. like at that point in time. Mm-hmm. And we had daily conversations about that subject for about a year. And I said, this is ridiculous. Why don't you come and work at the certain time? So we devised this these ridiculous titles, which were incredibly descriptive. I was director and co-director of exhibitions and programs. Yeah. And he was director of internet no, co-director of um, exhibitions and programs and director of international projects. So all programs were were devised by the two of us. Mm -hmm. I, once we decided, so including everything, um, once we decided on on the programs, I really sort of took over the the, um, pavilion and that really was probably my, my project after the decision of the architect had been made. And, mm-hmm. But everything to do with the exhibitions was, was dis- decided between us. And some, some shows I was more involved in than others, but mm-hmm. the team was brilliant. So they would always, you know, they, we'd always look at this install and look mm-hmm. at the plans and think about the right. So it was, it was just an incredible way of being involved in all aspects of the institution's work and not just being... Mm. an admin person and how did you choose artists because i know that you went from being a painter and then you sort of started to curate shows did you always have quite a confident approach to curating because it's something that always really scared myself like when i started working with carl friedman i remember being really impressed by his kind of confidence and russell has it actually which i don't really share this confidence of vision to and and a kind of like you're not embarrassed to kind of do a show and then show what you you know what i mean like i always found it really nerve-wracking but was it is curating something that you always felt quite naturally comfortable doing no I don't think I did no I mean when I came to the after because I worked at the Hayward and then that model the Hayward model is that you would always have an internal curator except they weren't called curators then and I worked 
a lot with David Sylvester, who did the Francis wow. Bacon interviews, yes. and yeah, yeah. very dist- hugely distinguished. Yeah. Um, and so my art world parents are David Sylvester and Joanna Drew, who ran the the visual arts of the Arts Council, wow. under who who employed Nick Sarota and yeah, yeah. I mean Catherine Lambert, so many distinguished people. Yeah. And so when I went to the Serpentine, I was like, oh, God, (laughs) (laughs) terrifying. And then my predecessor, Alistair Warman, who is the most brilliant kind of intellect and wonderful person, um, he left me two slots, which were one, I, I went on the 1st of April, ha, ha, ha. And he left me a slot in August and one in September, and there was there were no plans for shows. Now, if you worked for an institution like the Hayward, the program out for two years, yeah. I mean that is like next week. And also, there was very little money. I mean, actually, it was quite a lot, but at the time, it felt very little. Mm. Um, there was thirty thousand for both shows, and and I had to come up with something. Mm. And I suppose I found it so incredibly exciting, but absolutely terrifying. Yeah, do you of miss course, it? Do you miss that role? And is it something you would look to do again, maybe in the future, another institution? Because I know you're still curating here, yes. very curatorial, but do you miss that responsibility? Well, because I'm, I mean, there's a show in Paris of Bjarne Melgaard's work, yeah. which is a fantastic, it's a combination of his uh, whole body of work, um, which is called Elizabeth and Me and relates to Elizabeth Wurzel, who wrote Prozac Nation. Yeah. Do you, do you know it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've read the book. And have you I, really? How did you read the book? It is like the most painful thing you can ever read. Well, I read it in about 99 or something. Yes. Or maybe it, early It came 2000. out in 94. Okay, exactly, yeah. So I read it in when I was just turning 20, that kind of time. And yeah. I was incredibly intense at yes. that point. So for me, it was a... You know, release oh, exactly I, I loved it yeah um and girl interrupted that whole kind yes. of um type of writing in a it way. was that kind of mental health co- confessionals yeah mm. i mean highly personal mm. um and then people weren't talking about mental health like not exactly people are more actively exactly. talking yeah. about especially men's mental health yeah exactly and yeah. it's yeah. interesting Isolation. thinking of biana melgard's work because yes. i love his work as well i saw yes. an amazing show of his in norway and I think he's got that raw, visceral kind of oh, yeah. human drive, you know, passions and all those things. Like, I remember it's walking through that penis corridor where you had all yeah. like, the big, like, the big stitched penis. I know, so overtly down. sexual, yeah, but kind really. of just amazing. Yeah. Like, I, well, I, I did, a, I did a, a, um, a discussion with him, um, and I said, "Do all your pain something like? Do you see?" The male penis as a symbol of creativity. There is not one work of his that doesn't have a penis yeah. in it, uh-huh. except he did um, he did this amazing wallpaper for the show, which is all about Elizabeth Wurzel and figures, other figures of that uh, of that time. Do you miss that role though of being responsible for an institution? Well, at this point in time, I'm incredibly relieved. Yeah, right. Because, but, but I'm a trustee of the, the Courthold, which of course has an unbelievable collection yeah. um, by the visionary Samuel Courthold, who oh, I admire it's, it's so enormously. Mm. Um, so there is, I have still a foot in the not-for-profit world. Right. I'm very glad I'm not running an, an organisation. And uh-huh. I suppose if you, as we have, we're all self-confessed workaholics. You know, I've decided to put some of my workaholism into family life. Yes. Got it. So you channel it there, yeah. And channel it there. So that's really my 
my answer to that. Do you have a standout show from the Serpentine? Because the, the list I've got is Gilbert and George, Jeff Koons, Marina Abramovich, Agnes Martin, Basquiat, Robert Gober, Hurst. Uh, there was a Damien Hurst show and it got vandalised. I want to yes. ask about that. <laughs> yes. And, and Alex Katz. I mean, yeah. what is there one definitive show? Was any of them a nightmare? And tell me about this vandalised Hurst experience. Yes, there was one nightmare. A big nightmare. Yeah. Well, the Hearst was fascinating because, I mean, it's impossible. I mean, everything was done so inexpensively. And, and I mean, I remember one time when we'd run out of money and we couldn't afford to have a bar at an opening because what is ridiculous is that if you, if you sell drink, you ha- it actually costs you money before you get the income for the drink, and we, we didn't have that. So I was the bar lady. Happily so. I mean, I thought, it was, I thought it was hilarious. You know, painting walls, whatever. No worries. Yeah. Because that was part of the fun of doing it, yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, but the Damien thing was fascinating because uh, we borrowed a piece from Charles Saatchi called Away from the Flock, which mm. was a sheep in formaldehyde, and an artist called Mark Bridger, but we hadn't sealed the top of the flipping case so you, you have to put the, you know... Screws or... N- no, that stuff, that plastic stuff that you like have Like a glue or something? Like, a like you have in the bathroom, or something. whatever yeah. it is. Oh, like a filler. Yeah, yeah, no, yes. Like a, yes. Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean. Yeah, you put it around the shower to stop exactly. the water again. Yeah, yeah, got it. And a seal. That's yes. it. Yeah. Finally. <laughs> Three of us. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. You know how many people it takes to seal a bathroom? Yeah, to seal a David Hurst, yeah. Anyway, so we... Unfortunately, that hadn't been done. And Mark Bridger was an artist with, who had um, a grievance against the world, came in and poured into it. So the white sheet went black. <laughs> and it was literally completely black. Oh However, if, a, if that wasn't bad enough, the newspapers, the Independent, was there half an hour later. So we were completely and utterly stuffed. And there then there, we, it, there was... A, a deluge of press. So one morning I came into the kitchen and found, at the supper time, and found, you know, two press people standing there saying, can you please tell us about the, the sheep and formaldehyde? And um, because the Crown, the PPS, the Crown Public Prosecution, or whatever it's called, because we'd reported the crime, they then became involved and they took the matter to court. And Damien went into the witness box um, at the not the old Bailey, but the the street office in the opposite the Royal Opera House, that that um, that court, and he was in he was in the, the witness box, talking so brilliantly, as if there was any doubt in the future, his future. It was mm-hmm. like okay, you know, relaxed, funny, authoritative, very grand, and you know, just astonishing, <laughs> and so that went on for a long long time. Because, it, you know, the press and everything. But was it a negative press? Or was it because it was just... Well, no, because that was a time when I, I would be asked at every single show that opened, yeah. tell me why this is art, a child of three could do this, or a child of six. Right. And it was like... And they were still... The people who were asking me were still questioning whether Picasso was really pulling the wool over the public's... Eyes. Well, it was I mean, a YBA outrage as well, wasn't it? There was yes. a yeah. period where everyone yeah. was so yeah. angry at Tracy Emin's bed. And yes, it was exactly. Like... It was just very slightly before Tracy's bed, right. I think. 
I think. Um, I might be wrong. But the, 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 the one, there was one um, exhibition that was particularly memorable of many, mm. which was, for some reason, I rather liked to torture myself and the organisation, and I was not so good at planning ahead. So um, playing with the idea that the Serpentine was, you know, fleet of foot, there was about four months before a show was due to open and we hadn't got a show. So I thought, oh, this is a bit of a tricky one. And (laughs) so racked my brains and we all thought about it and, and came up with the idea that we would do an exhibition of the work of Man Ray, an incredibly distinguished artist, um, who had a fantastic show in Belgium. And uh, we decided to take the nucleus of that show, Mm -hmm. bring it to London and build it out into uh, a bigger exhibition because Mm -hmm. our space was bigger. And we included paintings and uh, photographs, obviously, objects. It was an incredible show with loans from the Tate, from the Met, from, from all over the place. It really outstanding. Now, there was one teensy-weensy problem, which was that it was before the Serpentine was renovated, and when it rained, the water uh, came through the roof. Oh, my God. Yes, but really properly. This was a, um, so you could guarantee that on the opening day it would pour with rain, and the rain would literally drip into the centre of the North Gallery, which was the Dome Gallery. Yeah. And for the opening of... Um, one of our exhibitions, I remember that um, it was put, it was somehow got in through the slats in the weather vane, and so I thought it would be a good idea to disguise this. And I thought the only way I could think of doing this was to get a, a mat, you know, like you wipe your feet on and put mm. it in the centre of the room, and that would absorb the water, and nobody would notice. Well, like who was I kidding? But for the man ray. For the Man Ray exhibition, on the day of the opening, just before the BBC were coming to film, the, um, the door of the weather vane blew off and went through the glass dome, this was pre-renovation, of the oh roof lights. And there was these shards of glass oh. spread everywhere, all over the floor, with these objects, you know, the very famous Man Ray of the woman's back with the violin. Yes. Do you know? Yeah, I mean, like yeah. the really, really famous one. Yeah. And that was on the wall with other examples of just astounding works of art. And in the, on this roof light, which was circular, there were these shards of glass like a seesaw going like this. Um, so we devised this. We got um, a plank of wood, you know, like um, builders use. I had mm. a very thick uh, leather coat. And we were like the sort of... With three people, I was at the front and two were at the back, and we got a, a broom so we could dislodge this shard of, of, of glass so it would come, fall down and break. Then we could cover the roof light with... And you were doing this? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> like, where was the caretaker or someone? No, because we didn't... Have, didn't no, that's not how it worked. There weren't <laughs> caretakers. There weren't caretakers. Yeah, all... going, come yeah. on, come down. So it came down and went flat. And then, of course, we had to clear everything up. So when the BBC came... We went, oh, yes, look at this beautiful show. And Francis Nauman, who was the, is the great specialist on surrealism, came to, because he advised about the show, mm-hmm. and he came to look at the exhibition. And we had humidifiers in every room, and I decided the way it would be really great to 
we could control the humidity by cladding all the windows. And then, of course, it rained again, and I saw to my horror the little step outside the submarine that the rain was creeping in. Oh, no. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? So the insurers knew nothing about any of this stuff going on, obviously. There's a water risk, there's a risk of glass smashing. no. But, you know, I mean, of course, it would be inconceivable. You couldn't do that now. No. And I always maintained, which, I mean, having heard these stories, obviously I would never be employed by another institution ever. <laughs> but I always maintained that, you know, this was this was a way to show people, well, firstly, the Serpentine was, in a, you know, in the park to show wonderful works of art, but also it was a way to... to to raise money for the gallery to make it into museum conditions, which we did. Do you go back and visit and see all the shows now? Well, I went back, in fact, on Sunday to see Jennifer Packer. Isn't it amazing? Oh, unbelievable. Yeah. Love Jennifer Packer, yes. Yeah, such a Unbelievable. Great show. Yeah, I've got oh. a little work in there. I love Have you her. really? Yeah. Oh, congratulations. Yeah. yeah, she's sensational. Yes. Russell introduced me to her work when she was in the Whitney Biennial, yeah. and he took me to the Whitney, and I he just kept talking about this one artist, particularly her. He liked about eight of the artists in the show, but there was this one, and I remember standing in front of it, kind of he built it up so much that I just thought I wasn't really going to like it or something. Do you know what I mean? It's like and then, big up Rothko or something, you know. So, yeah. And then I got there and I was like, oh my god, yeah. it's even better it's than powerful. he said. Yes, yeah. yeah. like yes, she's really extraordinary. Yeah, they're, they're extraordinary paintings and extraordinary for someone so young. That's why it doesn't quite feel. How can that even be possible? But. And She's an educator and an amazing oh, teacher. Yeah. Amazing so human many, being, yeah. yeah. But you know, Donna Nelson, who's who was in the a Focus on Painting, yes. she taught Jennifer Packer. Oh, yes. Interesting. Wow. I mean, the only sad thing was that the the show, the painting show here, wasn't on at the same time as the Jennifer Packer. Yeah, yeah. that would have been great. Because you know, it's like. Yeah. But what's amazing about you is that you really embrace young artists and ones who also want to think outside the box, like Alvaro Barrington. You've uh, curated two shows with, right? One, one of his own, uh, where it's artists I steal from, which was an incredible group show yeah. of like 50, 59 artists or yeah, something incredible. in there. And then one recently he was in. Yes. Do you, is that something you really embrace, finding new talent and letting them kind of exercise their dreams, I guess? Yes. Well, I mean, um, Norman Rosenthal introduced us to Alvaro mm-hmm. um, from the, the exhibition he did at PS1. Moment, yeah. In, yeah. And. Um, Yes, of course. I mean, to talk with people about art, there's nothing more exciting. Mm. It's fantastic. And also, you know, to be a good artist, I think, or to be an artist, leave out the good, I think it's one of the most difficult things you can do in the world. I always, I think it's the most. Because, you know, if I have a bad day, I come into work, I'm surrounded by a great group of people, I can go, I can just be off for a day and, you know, the Mm. business doesn't collapse. Mm -hmm. If you're an artist, you're self-reliant, you go into the studio every day. If you don't make work, nobody's going to make it for you. Mm. And it's, I mean, it's an incredibly tough profession. You know, it's something that you do for the whole of your life. Sometimes people are going to love your work, sometimes they're going to love it less. It's very exposing, you, isn't it? Oh, my God. And mm. you, have to, you have to stick with it. And then, on top of all of that, you have to be incredibly creative mm. and make new work and progress and develop. Very, very tough. Very, very tough. Mm-hmm. In the arts, not only visual arts, but in the arts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually messaged him this morning to say that I was going to go and see his show this weekend at um, Tommaso Corvi Mora's. Oh, it's brilliant. And um, I haven't seen it yet. And I said we were interviewing you and he was like, I love her. Oh! Um, <laughs> which is oh. very sweet. Well, everybody oh, loves you. Everybody oh, that's so sweet. It's true. You've got such an amazing quality about you that people respond to and 
everybody's got such wonderful things to say about you. Oh, God, I've gone all red like my oh. lipstick. But I, I mean, firstly, that's very kind. And I'm very glad this is on recorded so I can listen to it. <laughs> so I can listen to it over and over again. I get up in the morning and go, oh, let's just hear again what they said. Oh, it's so nice. Um, no, but that's, that's very, 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 very nice to hear. Alvaro's show, and of course I love Alvaro, um, is, is great. I mean, but really inventive and really interesting mm. and very, very, very good. But also there's a fantastic piece that he did for Sadie Curls in the Court Street Gallery. Yes. Have you seen it? I haven't seen it yet, yeah. Well, it's brilliant. It's, I've got pictures. I've got pictures, didn't I? Yeah, yeah, pictures. <laughs> yes, he's so great. interesting because I think he's really looking at culture more yeah. generally, like outside of the art world, yeah. like whether it be music or film or yeah. just popular culture. And he's really intelligently connecting art to, you know, it's all part of the same world in a way now because everything's much more... Bauhaus in a way than it ever was in the sense that everything's become more multidisciplinary but I really respect him for that because I think he's very consciously thinking about culture mm-hmm. and he is affecting change and I, I think he's quite extraordinary actually. He's very inclusive for other artists. As totally. Well. He's always bringing other yeah. artists yeah. with him and, and yeah. introducing them to the world and yeah that's really giving of him there's not a selfishness about him at all. No, no, no. no His success is everyone else's success. Yes. Well I mean the, the Sadie Cole's um, piece, well there are three in in her gallery in Court Street um, is amazing because it's really it's to ra- the sale is to raise money for three women either uh, living in the Caribbean or the UK to make carnival costumes mm. because two years ago Alvaro did a float. Yeah. He yes. bought, I mean, all the incredible music. Were you there? No, I saw the float. I've seen, I've seen the photos, yeah. yeah. I and think we might he have did. Even he one he did. Um, he did a concert called the Family Concert, yeah. and of soco yeah. uh, music, which yeah. I'd never heard of, and so I was going soco. What soco? And um, but it was incredible. Yeah, unbelievable. Really, really extraordinary. Wow. Yeah. And you've actually just mentioned. So talking about women, if you think of your whole career and looking back, how the landscape's changed for not only women artists, but also women professionals, you know, in the actual gallery system. Because growing up um, in the art world myself from the age of like 21, 22, all the people I gravitated towards, all the ones that were supportive to me were were women. I would say 95%, yeah. Um, Extraordinary people like Maureen Paley, uh, Margot at um, South London Gallery. Like there were so many people, but it was always women. And I think you, Louisa Bach, exactly. And you, for me, were always someone that stood out as being a kind of leader and someone that changed the perception of what was possible. Um, Were you conscious? I mean, obviously, you're aware of um, how how things were changing, you know, feminist wise and feminism wise. But were you conscious of your own influence? And was that something that was important to you to sort of or, or is it just something that happened in your life and you just kind of lived, I guess? <laughs> I don't, you know what I mean? Is it something that you were aware of? And... No, not at all. Because um, firstly, I, I have five sisters and also um, a stepmother and a, and a mother. So I have my whole blood sister and then I have four half-sisters. Uh-huh. We're a family of women. So being around women with women is kind of natural to me. I right. mean, it's just, you know... Men were absent. I mean, I know. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't, the person you describe, it it doesn't, I don't recognise at all. Right. I think I found 
um, possibly in architecture, that was more where you came up with sort of the male thing. And always every year I had to... There was a moment when I knew I would have to uh, exert my view, my my view about something. Your authority. Or... Yes, authority. Yeah. And your perspective. Yes. Yeah. And, and every year I used to go up and go, God, oh, God, because it would always be a moment when the architect would really hate me. And then, you know, it was a process. But then they'd be happy and they'd love me because actually what they did was extraordinary every mm. single year. Yeah. But there was a moment, and I knew that I would, would be pushing them incredibly hard, which indeed I did. We all did. But, um, yeah... No, I don't, I don't recognise that as being a role model. I, all I wanted to do was to do really well for the gallery. Right. Mm. And so when I, I started, Nick Sirota was, had this incredible history at the Whitechapel and then moved to the Tate. So as far as I was concerned, he was, you know, he'd really understood how to do it all. Mm-hmm. And I wanted, not me, I wasn't, because I come from a generation where it's not about, it's about the institution rather than the person. Mm-hmm. Yes. I wanted the institution to be a rival to the Tate. And also for people not to snigger when I said that. Of course, it was absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> it could never be a rival to the Tate in a thousand billion years. But it was this idea, just because we're small, it doesn't mean to say that we can't do things as well as within our own terms. Yeah. And so that was always the kind of goal, really. And and also necessity is a mother of invention, and I think an incredibly helpful way of operating. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You have a mantra: think the unthinkable. Yes. Is that something that you still yes have? Absolutely. So what is what is how is that playing into your role here now? And what what are your um, <laughs> what what are you hoping to achieve? Or what is the unthinkable that you're thinking about right now? Well, as this is a public talk, I think Tedes will not welcome me. <laughs> oh, he's giving away all the secrets. <laughs> Telling okay. him oh, okay. my oh, unthinkable right. thoughts. No, I, as far as here, I mean, it's very difficult. I mean, it's very different if you're the director of something yeah. and you have to get the job done. You don't quite know how you're going to do it. Mostly you don't know how you're going to do it mm-hmm. and you have to invent something to, to do it. Mm-hmm. And, of course, working with Hans Ulrich was the best thing you could possibly imagine because, firstly, he's brilliantly clever and also he's just a wonderful person so we were always thinking the unthinkable and you know even about projects when we did China Power Station and Buttersea Power Station and we had a part we were in partnership with the Astrid Fernley Museum of uh, Modern Art and Gunnar Koran who was then director and there was a point in the whole curator the curating of the project and the organization of the project and I remember saying okay well, is this going to go ahead? Mm. Shall we stop it? Because that's always, it's always really interesting to take the most extreme position and then look at that point where you are from that extreme position. Because in a way, you can assess things much better, or I find I can anyway, mm. um, and then it did go ahead. But if we come to a decision that it shouldn't have done, I would have been okay with that. Mm. Wow. Yeah, cool. Well, we ask every guest that comes on two very important questions. The first one is, if you could do an art heist, you can have... You're not a collector, you said, but minimal collection, but if you could have any work of art in the world and you could steal it nicely and you're getting in trouble... <laughs> I love that. Steal it nicely. <laughs> I it heard be? you say that on another one. <laughs> what, would it, what would it be and why? Well, 
I thought long and hard about this, and um, I am very fortunate to be um, working in this beautiful building, and we described, discussed how it was the former residence of the Bishop of Ely. So I think that the Pope has really, you know, been in residence for rather too long. Yes. So I, um, I'm planning a very aggressive takeover of the Vatican. Oh, wow. Yeah, I think, you know, to be, go, to be ambitious. Love. And so I, I'm going to go and set up shop. I'm going to set up camp in the, the room that contains a Sistine Chapel. Yeah. And that's going to be where I live and work and operate from now on. That's your next office. Yeah. yeah. My that next is office. thinking the unthinkable. <laughs> it is, I think. Taking so. Tadeus Ropak <laughs> to, exactly. to the Vatican. Yeah. Wow. And also, you know, Tadeus has always thought Italy would be great. So I think Amazing. that's a way to go. Selling art. God, can you imagine? It's so extraordinary in there. I remember visiting, I went to see Lorcan O'Neill, um, my first trip yeah. to, to Rome, and I went in there. And it is, it mm. is. Mm. absolutely breathtaking isn't it mm. first time you see it it's like something you've seen reproduced so, so many, many times, times on and it does take your breath away it's yeah. that's probably where the phrase comes from do you know yeah. what i mean like mm. it's extraordinary though but how could somebody i mean it's this idea that that somebody came up with the idea of of doing that the sistine chapel and 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 actually painting it is yeah unbelievable mm. yeah yeah i thought about the mona lisa because also i think to live with the mona lisa and really understand that painting properly, which is almost impossible now mm. because you can't get close enough to it. Yes. However, if you go to the Louvre at nine o'clock in the morning, you can actually get close. Wow. Because nobody's there at nine o'clock in good the morning. Good tip. People it's are lazy. It's behind bulletproof glass <laughs> yes, and stuff is. now, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and it's got a funny barrier and goodness knows. But you can get as close as you can possibly get to it. But I really want to, I would really love to really understand that painting properly, which, of course... You can always through photographs, or, but it's not the same. No, it's so true. And there's certain paintings, aren't there, in history, where if you think of like Edvard Munch's Scream, or you think of, I don't know, a certain painting by Frida Kahlo, or th- there's different paintings which are just so extraordinary, or Picasso, or. Oh, I'm like Guernica. Whenever I yeah. see Guernica, yeah. there's always loads of people there, but I'm always, I can never fully like, understand what, what I'm looking at. No, I know it's extraordinary, yeah. isn't it? And that's that's amazing art. That's that's yeah. something else, isn't it? That yes. transcends what we are. Yes. Yeah. Yes. The other question we ask every guest is, "What is your favourite colour?" Oh. Well, funnily enough, um, I'm going to say blue, but there's a particular kind of blue. Okay. There's a, it's really a cornflower blue, and um, when I was at the Royal College, I I wore my grandfather's shirt, which was this blue linen color and it's a it, it's a beautiful blue because it's it's such a pure color beautiful so that's why you're painting you wore it yes or, oh, your painter's smock is that what they call well, it well no no i no. no i wore it as a as a shirt okay i had a kind of uniform uh, you know <laughs> i thought it was a good idea anyway <laughs> and part of my uniform i had three shirts two plaid wow. ones and this this blue one wow. from my grandfather wow so, so what's coming up next what can we see here at the gallery that is scheduled to be happening? Well, Robert Rauschenberg and Not Vital are the next shows. Great. There's a 30th anniversary show on uh, in Paris at the moment, which is absolutely spectacular. And of course, for today, you know, to be 30 years in the business, have carved out a singular reputation mm. as being not only a wonderful. Um, 
gallerist, but also just an incredibly nice person mm-hmm. who is so widely respected by artists and collectors mm-hmm. and museum people, mm-hmm. is such an extraordinary achievement. And so, of course, um, Jean, Jean-Marc Bustamont, which is in the Marais, and then we've talked about Bjarne Melgaard's show. Yes, yes, yes. So, I mean, there's lots to see. Yeah. And I urge everybody to move like at the speed of light to go and do so. Absolutely. Yeah, the pandemic's really made it harder, hasn't it, for everyone to see things. And I think when oh, they do yeah. get the chance to go out, like right now in London, everyone's going to all these shows. Oh, I just read that it's thing so about Jamry that we can't go to Europe unless it's yeah, for yeah, like, yeah, yeah. It's essential really travel, which is kind of terrifying, isn't it, post-Brexit? It's, I mean, how's, that's going to change the but world, you, but the art But you world. can, can't you? As, a, as an actor, you can travel. If you're working, yeah. But yes. if you're just going for a weekend to go and see art, yeah. I guess not, but unless we say we're doing talk arts... Yeah. Well, no, but we are allowed to travel yeah. when, you're, when you're working. Yeah. But um, I actually think Tadeus's programme is so extraordinary and mm-hmm. he really is a centre for excellence. And it's highly unusual, I think, in a commercial sector to have such kind of consistent excellence. I mean, it's mm-hmm. really extraordinary what he does. And even this and the whole team, obviously, and yourself. Um, but I mean, the actual you know, institution does. I think it's an amazing thing. And this building is testament to that too, because it's so exquisite. And when we walked in today, I said to Russ, this building's just, yeah, this is magic. the kind of gallery that, you know, this this feels meaningful and special. Mm-hmm. And I'm really glad that he chose London, you know, as an extension of what, what he does. But also the Rauschenberg show that was here was so good, the last one. Yes. So I'm really looking forward to th- this new show. Yes. Um, and also, I mean, there are so many discoveries because, I mean, he, uh, when I was growing up, um, Joseph Boyce was such a mm-hmm. significant figure yes. and, and today represents a number of estates, including the Boyce estate. And, of course, it's Boyce's um, centenary, uh, I think, next year. Oh, wow. Which is incredibly important. And... Um, you know, to have to have that connection to history. And James Rosenquist, mm. another great artist, you know, one of the four founding artists of, of, the, of pop art. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. For whom that, uh, that term was invented. Amazing. And also the next generation with yeah. Mandy. And, exactly. Yeah. Rachel Jones, yes. Exactly. Who, who we love. Yeah, yes, Russell's exactly. got me obsessed now as well. Love, Incredible love, artist. Love. Yeah, she is. Really but she's going to be. She's doing lots of things next year. Yeah. We'd love to talk to her if we ever could. We, yeah, well, of course you we're can. We're big, big fans Definitely. of hers. Yeah. She'd be On, as a final note, what yeah. advice would you give to artists who are kind of making their way, um, beginning their careers, um, as someone that's, you know, had such an extraordinary career as yourself? Um... Well, I'm quite, I'm quite old-fashioned and sort of puritanical. Um, so I would say, first of all, decide what you want to do. And in a way, it doesn't really matter what you decide when you start, because you're going to evolve from that. And then be really focused and work hard and look hard. So if you're going to be a visual artist, or, well, not even a visual artist, look and become really well-informed about your discipline. I mean, we talked about Albrecht, but incredibly well-informed. Yeah. Fascinating to talk to him about art. Yeah. Always looking at shows. When he gets stuck with the work, he always goes out and looks at art. And that, that don't look around and see what your colleagues are doing or your friends are doing. Mm-hmm. Don't worry about that. Mm-hmm. Look at people who can inform and educate you, who are exhibiting either now or from history. And also look back look back into history because you know great art has been made through centuries and I think it's 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 such a pleasure to go into say the National Gallery and mm. see so many extraordinary things and I I yes 
And if you get successful, never, uh, never believe your own press release and always keep focused on the studio. Wow. Great advice. Well, I, one thing about Alvaro that you just brought him up then is the fact that he also says, go and look at work that you don't like and try and work out why you don't like yes. it, which I think is a really fascinating Oof, way yes. of looking Good at advice. art yes. as well. Yes. Why does this trouble me? Why does this annoy yes. me? Why does this frustrate me? Because yeah. will, that will, bad art, in your opinion, reveals something else. So I think that's great. No, I mean, and, and he's completely and utterly right. Yeah. Amazing. Wonderful. Thank you well, so much. Julia Payton-Jones, thank Dame you so much. Dame Julia Payton-Jones, no! about that. Oh, we didn't talk about that. Yes. Yeah, what was that like? Just instantly at the end, just a little casual Just a little, like, yeah, just totally Dame <laughs> quickly. <laughs> Sum it up. Well, you know, I was so lucky that they gave it to me. And, you, yeah, I remember getting the envelope and going, oh, my God, of course, how could you not? I mean, I think it's like being given the biggest present and I know some people don't accept it, and of course I recognise and respect that that decision. But mm. for me, it was like, wow. Yeah. And it's not that I—I I mean, I forget ninety-nine point percent of the time. But then, when you tell me things like Dame Julia Pinkjones, I go, Oh, it's me! <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to be a dame. <laughs> Russell, it's not too late. <laughs> <laughs> One day, babe. Um, thank you so much. Thank you so it's been much. such a privilege to spend yeah. this hour with you. And um, for everyone listening, you can find images of all the artworks we've spoken about on our Instagram, yes. which is at TalkArt. Are you on Instagram? Yes. It's at Julia.PeytonJones. Thank you very and much. And an at Tadeus Ropak. And at Tadeus Ropak. And we yeah. will link to you on our, all of our posts. Perfect. And will you will you link to Tadeus Ropak? Yes, yeah, we yeah. will. Oh, yeah, we will. Thank yeah, you yeah. so much. No, definitely. Yeah, yeah. No, that's so kind and, of you. Um, this is kind yeah, of this you. has this been such a wonderful. Amazing. No, no, but really treat. big thank you. So yeah. can we go and see art together? Yes, oh, let's go and look at the, the exhibitions dream. downstairs. Oh, yes. Wonderful. We'll be back very soon. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Talk Art with Robert Diamond and Russell Tovey. Follow us on Instagram at Talk Art, where you can view images of all artworks discussed in today's episode, with music by Jack Northover. Subscribe to Talk Art at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Give us a rating and write us a comment. Thanks for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.